On the Record with Gavin Riley. Brought to you by PwC on News Talk. 10th of July 2022. You're very welcome along and thank you for joining us this morning. This is Gavin Riley with you for the next two hours on News Talk. This is On The Record. 53106 as always, the number if you want to get in touch with your text about anything you hear on this morning's programme. That's at a cost of 30 cent. We're also on Twitter. I am at Gav Riley. The station is at News Talk FM and our hashtag is On The Record NT. So do get in touch with your thoughts about anything and everything that's on your mind or anything that you hear uh, in today's programme. A bit of a varied uh, palette of front pages. Uh, We'll start with the Sunday Independent. Uh, Matthew O'Toole, the family doctor who received a confidential GP contract document from Leo Varadkar, has claimed that Che Bowes, the troubleshooter brought into the scandal hit National Association for General Practitioners, urged him to obtain the paperwork. Uh, Dr. O'Toole said Mr. Varadkar had leaked him the document, which is marked confidential, and afterwards Che Bowes, who was brought in as interim CEO to overhaul the organisation, said, we owe Leo one. But, as people who might be familiar with the twists and turns of this story will remember, Mr. Bowes later turned whistleblower and complained to Gardee about the leaking of the confidential document, resulting in a near two-year criminal investigation that ended only last week when the DPP decided to bring no charges to the case, including against the Taunashta. Uh, people will remember that Village magazine published the story of how Mr. Varadkar had leaked this document, uh, which contained details of a proposed deal with the rival IMO. To Dr. Matt O'Toole, who was at the time the president of the National Association of GPs, which was a rival body, uh, contacted about Dr. O'Toole's claim uh, for the Sunday Independent. Uh, Mr. Bowes said he had only been involved with the NAGP for about 15 days uh, when Dr. O'Toole obtained this document from Leo Varadkar. He said that he had been focused on overhauling the calamitous organisation. He said that he was not aware of having encouraged uh, Dr. O'Toole to get this document. He says, I have no recollection of encouraging him to get it other than to say if Leo's got it, we owe him one, Mr. Bowes said. The NAGP had been trying to acquire the details of this document for a year prior to his involvement with this organisation and those are the facts. If he hadn't had access to this information he wouldn't have been able to expose it. Uh, He, which is Dr O'Toole, bragged openly about his access to Varadkar and was worried that this access would be exposed. Uh, So that is a a latest uh, string of of, um, counterclaims and counterclaims following this DPP uh, decision this week not to prosecute Leo Varadkar. Um, Also on the front page of the Sunday Independent, the long lost son of a woman found dead in her Tipperary home with her husband and whose bodies lay undiscovered for up to 18 months has been located by an Irish air hunter business. The remains of Hilary Smith and her husband Nicholas uh, who were originally from the UK were found last month by Gardaí in their home uh, outside Clanine Village on the Tipperary Kilkenny border. Podrick Grennan, who's the founder of a probate genealogy firm, Aaron Research, discovered that Hilary Smith has a 61-year-old son in England from a previous relationship and that Nicholas Smith also has a brother living in London. So they have been able to find some next of kin uh, for that couple who were tragically lying dead in their home in Tipperary for such a long time. Uh, the front page of the Business Post has uh, yet another health tape. And I don't say yet another to try and demean or to say that it's more of the same old, same old, because this in itself is quite striking. New leaked records from inside the health system reveal serious dysfunction in the HSE's management of its budget during the COVID pandemic, with one official remarking that it had committed as big a sin as it gets by spending money without government approval. The Business Post has obtained recordings of the Health Budget Oversight Group, which is made up of officials from the HSE, the Department of Health and the Department of Public Expenditure. Among the worrying aspects discussed at these meetings during the first summer of the pandemic, which is summer 2020, was the HSE committing to spending €770 million on PPE, despite only being given sanction to spend €205 million. When this emerged in June of 2020, the HSE was unable to provide clear details on its spending commitments when questioned. At the meeting, a Department of Public Expenditure official said that from their point of view, 
Encouraging expenditure of this magnitude without advanced sanction is as big a sin as it gets. And another official said that it was bizarre and beggar's belief that the HSE officials could not comment on the 770 million euro figure, which had only become public information following an FOI request by a freelance journalist. Uh, Another uh, fascinating indication of some of the strains between government and HSE there. Also on the front page of the Business Post, companies in high energy industries in Ireland are already preparing plans for gas rationing this winter. Business leaders across a number of sectors said they expect to be asked to shut down or reduce operations in the event that the state is forced to implement emergency gas rationing protocols due to unfolding energy crisis across Europe. Uh, People might remember last week that there was some talk that um, Great Britain might be forced to cut off some of its gas exports in the, the event of there being some shortages last week. They had said that they weren't going to include Ireland among that, but evidently now it is some that many business leaders are having to consider. And very briefly, the moratorium on the building of new data centres in the Greater Dublin area is putting Ireland's position as a European tech hub under threat, according to the head of the IDA. Martin Shanahan said the data centres were an integral part of the technology ecosystem and he warned that the current ban on new facilities in Dublin could see global tech firms withdraw from Ireland, uh, which is fascinating in and of itself because inside the Business Post today there is analysis uh, that the Facebook parent company Meta has a new data centre um, just outside Cluny in County Meath. And last year it used as much uh, electricity as 151,000 average Irish homes. That is one data centre alone, which maybe illustrates uh, some of the debate around the use of the national grid. Uh, Front page of the Sunday Times, um, Irish goods including Clonakilty sausages, Irish yoghurts and pseudo cream, the nappy rash cream, are cheaper in British supermarkets than in Irish outlets, an investigation by the Sunday Times has found. Some retailers that uh, operate in both countries, including the likes of Tesco and Boots, charge Irish customers more for the same products at current exchange rates. And the findings will increase concern over whether retailers are giving Irish shoppers a fair deal against the background of an escalating cost of living crisis and uh, claims of price gouging in sectors such as hotels and car rental. Matt Carthy, Sinn Féin TD, is quoted in this article by saying that it's clear Irish consumers are being ripped off and no one appears to have control of the situation. Jed Nash of Labour said it would be galling for Irish customers to see familiar products that are produced in the Republic and that that is the bit that's worth underlining, you know, the likes of Sudacream and Irish products, Clonakilty sausages, Irish yogurts, would be galling to see those things produced in the Republic costing us more than they do across the water uh, or in the North. Um, also, Boris Johnson lobbied for a job for a young woman who claims to have abused his power to have a sexual relationship with her. That was at the time when he was the MP uh, or the Mayor of London. Uh, and Fianna Fáil backbenchers are to hold another private meeting next month or early September in an effort to influence the budget and pressure ministers into asserting the party's identity in government. And that is interesting because the front page of the Mail on Sunday tells us in the wake of this meeting of backbench Fianna Fáil TDs and senators during the week that Micheál Martin must declare his intention to step down as Fianna Fáil leader in the autumn or face being forced out. A large number of TDs and senators have told the Mail on Sunday a collective fear among party backbenchers of seat losses, which was aired at an unsanctioned meeting in Leinster House this week, has crystallised now into open revolt, pushing Micheál Martin's leadership to the brink. Rock bottom poll figures, shambolic party organisation, this is the Mail's words, underperforming ministers and Mr Martin's autocratic leadership were cited in briefings for the Mail on Sunday as reasons for a change of leadership. The party's dismal 14% rating was repeatedly raised at that meeting on Wednesday, attended by 30 TDs and senators, which has been described as a game changer for Micheál Martin's leadership. That's a higher number than the 28 Fianna Fáil or Octave members who attended the party's official pre-budget summit. Uh, that much I hadn't realised actually that there were fewer people at the official meeting than there were at this breakaway one. Uh, that is your tour of what's in the front pages 
of this morning's newspapers. We are joined by uh, Groin of the A, a political reporter with PA Media, and by Sheena Cahill, who's the uh, former president of the Union of Students in Ireland, now the head of communications uh, with Goshka, the President's Award. Um, good morning to you both. Um, I, we don't want to spend all day talking about Boris and the Tories and the, the, the psycho and the melodrama and everything. Um, but Groin, it's very difficult to get away because so much of the inside of the papers is, is wrapped up with it. Is there anything in particular that jumps out for you from the acres of coverage that there is today? Yeah, and I suppose so much happened in such a short space of time, you know, I know it was 48 hours, but like it was minute by minute update. So I suppose it's good to have the papers to go, oh, yeah, that happened. Oh, yeah, I forgot about that, that happened because you might take, have taken a minute or two to notice it at the time. But um, it also is just really interesting, you know, similar to Fianna Fáil having their debate about who's going to come along next, who is going to lead the Tory party next. One piece I really enjoyed headline and content wise was uh, one by Jeremy Paxman in the Sunday Times with the headline, Johnson sees the hand bars then steered us into a ditch which <laughs> which is well, not as I, I wonder what the tone subtle. of that piece is then well he, he talks about kind of, he, he, it is kind of measured enough in terms of getting Brexit done for the new Prime Minister in 2019 was a big win but he failed to pass um, muster on many of the other measures after that and I think that's a fair analysis um, but he talks about how you know he oozed entitlement for the for the role, and you know, the, the word even the word herd. When he said, "When the herd moves, it moves," it mm. suggested that mm. he kind of had disdain for what you know mm. the Tory party. A lot of them who had put him in this position because they thought he would win elections. Disdain for party politics, really. <laughs> Politicians <laughs> disdain for party politics. But there's a for one people voting and doing things together. <laughs> it was backstabbing in the Tory party. Um, but you know, the, the piece has a photo of Boris Johnson on. Uh, on a bike in a helmet um, and Jeremy Paxman is sitting behind him um, and there's a very funny line in this where he said someone had the idea that Johnson and I should ride a dilapidated tandem during my last edition of Newsnight he immediately seized the front seat that was where he belonged the fact that he promptly steered us into a ditch was omitted from the clip version sorry okay sadly. so the, the headline, happened. I thought the headline was some sort of like moral uh, well, you know, the, the, display that, that it was supposed to be a summary of how the guy had seized power back in like in, in the, the heady days of 2019 and that everything had gone haywire like he literally means that he seized the handlebars well, of an actual bicycle he means it literally and metaphorically okay. I mm. think so and he uses the anecdote for how Boris Johnson believes he belongs in the front seat steering the handlebars yes, yeah. and the, the, the outcome isn't great but yeah. uh, that kind of sets the tone for a lot of the coverage looking back at Boris Johnson's premiership and when we look to the future it's a very mixed bag of who who could come up next you know and um, the Sunday Business Post has a, a big two page spread in the middle of the paper about uh, Anglo-Irish relations and what the, the leadership might mean and um outline that Rishi Sunak might be a good moderate candidate but I'm reading mm. in British media a lot that they don't want to moderate they want to Brexit here Yeah well what's uh, particularly striking is that Robert Peston uh, ITV's political editor has only tweeted just inside the last couple of minutes and he's pointing out that Rishi Sunak is the only one of the 10 or so candidates so far who's running on a platform of not promising unfunded short-term tax cuts. And that he's, he's already pointing out that basically it's a debate between someone who represents this idea <clears> of, <throat> no, we have to be able to like fund society versus everyone else who I think wants Jeremy to, be Hunt to cut is, taxes as much as possible. I, I think Jeremy Hunt has come out on that as well. And I suppose it's interesting that the Chancellor, who said in his resignation letter that he had dif- uh, differences of opinion with Boris Johnson on the economy ahead of a budget, that he is saying that we can't cut taxes right now. Um, uh, the problem, I suppose, is that 
you know, one of the things that was said about Liz Truss when she introduced the another leadership candidate, when she introduced the um, uh, protocol legislation was that it was to shore up support among the Tory backbenchers. And I think that and the ERG in particular, and I think that is going to be such a strong feature of this campaign, you know, more moderate candidates that are well liked, although they might be um, a welcome change kind of for the leadership in tone. I'm not sure the Tory party will be happy with that kind of leader in charge. And it's again about what direction the Tory party wants to take. They want, they're very conscious of trust being a massive issue and needing to win back not just the public's tr- uh, trust, but international trust with the EU and Ireland and all that. But I don't see an obvious candidate that can do that. And the other thing that was said, like a lot of these candidates, you know, Rishi Sunak was a very, very much a front leader last year. But then mm. obviously the scandal came out about mm. his his wife not having it, uh, being. Uh, he, he was also one of the people who received the fine for, for breaking the law for, for the unauthorised lockdown yes. gatherings over oh. Partygate. He, he was the attendee at Boris Johnson's not very party like birthday party. And it came soon after, I think, the the story about his wife not being dom- domiciled, domiciled yeah. in the UK for tax such, purposes. Such a good chance that he couldn't even convince his own wife to pay him tax. <laughs> Is particularly good. Um, I noticed that Penny Mordaunt actually is one of the um, the candidates for the Conservative leadership. She, of course, has her own, um, you know, very uh, snappily titled uh, website, pm for pm dot com. The domain name was registered on May the fourth, twenty nineteen. So this has been a campaign uh, a long time in the works. Um, Sheena Cahill, I, I know that uh, you will be very professional at parking your. Uh, utter disdain for all things Conservative Party uh, in t- picking out some of your favourite pieces right. from the Tories papers about it. Babbling, bumbling band of buffoons. That's okay. why I wanted to start with that because that Harry Potter quote by McGonagall has been in my uh, <laughs> has been in my head all week and definitely across those 48 hours where um, Britwatch was at its best particularly yeah. on Twitter. Mm. Um, no, there was a good piece um, I thought in, in, in the Indo just, you know, that flagging about the idea that um, Boris Johnson ran the government like it was a branch of the entertainment industry like that's how he approached um, the commons he had no respect at all for um, the integrity or uh, transparency of his decision making um, in front of the House of Commons and with even probably internally in the party Um, you know there's a quote uh, you know dishonesty wasn't a bug in the Bojo operating system it was the system itself and I suppose we're talking about that mixed bag of the Tories the possible leadership that's coming up But the reality is we really don't know what they're going to do. The same group of people, like what, 370 uh, odd Mm. Tories um, who like in effect backed this guy who, you know, even at the time that he was, you know, appointed leader or elected as leader to for the Tories, we knew all the stuff about him. We knew how dodgy he was. We had seen, all we'd heard from, um, you know, people in uh, who went to college with him, his professors. We'd heard uh, about, you know, how, like, you know, how, again, dishonest he was at that point. Mm. Um, the kind of, you know, posh boy attitude he had, uh, you know, an effectively anti-poor attitude he had the whole way through college. And then the fact that his, you know, first front page article, uh, you know, was uh, included a quote that he'd made up himself. So he'd lo- he lost that job temporarily. Mm. Um, this that guy was a, a writer for The Times. Yeah, yeah. And it's just like we knew all this. So if the same people knew all this and still picked this mm. guy. I'm I'm not like, confident about who we're going to get next. We, we do forget that because like the Jennifer R. Curry allegations mm. about whether he was using money as the mayor of London to basically pay off his mistress and bring her on trade missions and stuff. That was all out there before yeah. he won the general election in 2019. That The allegations about 
do you remember when the neighbours had to be called the, the cops because him, he and Carrie Carrie were having a very loud loud row um, in, in the apartment that was all before he ever became party leader let alone prime minister so there's a really he was good, a bit of an open book there's a really good um, idea not in the papers today but I think it's in a piece in the Atlantic and there was also a podcast by Politico on it a couple of weeks ago about how leaders in particularly Tory prime ministers in Britain um often the things that make them popular when they initially become leader are then become their downfall. And I think that is mm. definitely the case for Boris Johnson. He had this kind of charm that nothing really, he would bat kind of issues away. It's been often said about him that he defied political gravity because scandals that would collapse. Rock everybody else. Another mm. leader just bounced off, off his back repeatedly. Um, and I think what happened was you know, he didn't take things too seriously. That appealed to people because he seemed like an everyday man. But as things got on, he took nothing seriously. It started great on people, particularly with the cost of living crisis mm. tumbling and down the tracks. I mean, well, yeah, his, I was going to say party his, gate. Yeah, yeah and, uh, but, and, and the whole, you know, herd immunity strategy that he came out with really early that proved really, really bad in the UK and led to so many deaths and hospitalizations in effect unnecessarily and was found as unnecessary and a poor policy decision you know by by the UK Parliament afterwards um, at committee like that kind of stuff he just ballsily went into didn't seem to bo- bother him that he could be wrong um, and kept fluffing up his hair and mm. thinking this is fine I think for me when I was kind of when you'd be following it and you'd be struck by just kind of the stuff he'd come out with um, you know what felt like off the top of his head uh, and he was getting away with it and it just felt like his speeches were very long and rambling and no particular structure to them mm. but it was the Peppa Pig moment at one point where he went on a, a kind of oh, a bit yeah. of a rant, mm. mentioned Peppa Pig. Mm. And I think every advisor around him was like, that definitely wasn't in the notes. And I think that you could see that kind of slow march towards yeah. what see, we see today. He, 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 he was go. at least correct that Peppa Pig does look like a hairdryer. <laughs> I, I can vouch that much from being the, 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 the purchaser of many soft toys in that case. He would go uh, off script and there was a mm. certain charm to that because people felt it was a bit more raw. Accessible but, a bit. Exactly, yeah. yeah. But then, you know, and then people don't like, you know, pr- people who stick too much to the script and they don't can't really understand what they're saying because normal people don't talk like that. But the, the thing about Boris Johnson was that it, it all ha- kept happening a bit haphazard, everything, and you can't mm. run a government like no. that. And I think even um, with his resignation speech, there were reports coming out that he wasn't even going to stick to the script. Did he that. even resign in his resignation well, speech in uh, the end? He, he didn't. And actually, I, I observed that. But then it was pointed out that once you trigger a new leadership election, that you actually kind of don't have to resign. Because as, as, soon, as soon as a new leader is appointed then presumably the Queen just invites that person to form a government instead and you he, don't actually he, have to go in and hand He also did reference to a, an appointment of a new leader in his speech kind mm. of thing yeah. which kind of But it, it is was a de facto it all marks that cult of personality that he very much relied on that very much character driven mm. politics not about events but about character but the, the, and, a, yeah. a, the example I will use that encapsulates Boris Johnson was the, the leadership race the last time was Jeremy Hunt versus Boris Johnson Jeremy Hunt said I think we need a Brexit deal we will extend it until October at the mm. time and then we will get a Brexit deal but we need more time to get it right. And Boris Johnson was like, no extension, this has gone on long enough, mm. we're going to get it done by the summer. And he won the leadership channel challenge and then extended it until October. Mm. And I think that encapsulates mm. kind of a lot of... That was the whole way through Boris his career. Johnson he kept saying yeah. things like, I'm taking this job but I'll definitely not run for MP when I'm a journalist. And then he went, took the job and ran for MP while he was yeah. a journalist. Um, the uh, On the failure actually to, to acknowledge that he was quitting or to at least say those words, I resign, it, it strikes me. And I know sometimes these uh, comparisons can be very laboured or very lazy. 
but it struck, struck me very much like the previous leader on the other side of the Atlantic who just couldn't bring himself to acknowledge that the people had gone in a different direction and needed to point that out. Um, Fianna Fáil councillor Michael Clark has pointed out that PM for PM, uh, the date in which uh, Penny Mordaunt's uh, domain name was registered, it was the date in which the Tories came fifth in the last European elections, which was maybe that she thought the writing was on the wall for, mm. for Theresa May, uh, even back then, let alone uh, at any other time. Um, DUP leader, which I should stress is a parody account, which is not actually Sir Geoffrey Donaldson, um, points out that any Tory candidates who believe that trust with the EU should be rebuilt while pledging to push through a piece of domestic law that overrides that international treaty uh, needs to get their head examined. And someone else uh, makes a similar point. Marcella says she can't understand why people think changing the name of the person pushing through the Brexit Protocol Bill will make any jot of difference to the EU or any other country watching on. Which is an important point, Gorney, isn't it? Because, and, and I will talk to Mary Lou Macdonald about this later in the programme, that not a single Conservative MP, for all of their, their gnashing of teeth or their, their ringing of fingers, voted against the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill when it went through its second stage a couple of months ago. No. So oh, they, this idea that Teachit was saying that maybe there's a, a rump in the Conservative Party that's still prepared to go back to the old, you know, multilateral way of doing things strikes me as being very fanciful. Well, if if there if there is someone who is willing to do that, they're not going to talk about it much. Put it that way. Um, News Talks political correspondent Sean Defoe asked Taoiseach on Thursday, you know, that the protocol um, policy mm. that Boris Johnson has pushed through that's led to this legislation is a Tory policy, not a Boris Johnson one. And Taoiseach said that's a fair point, and I think that was very telling that they that they accept that there is a, a core, um, you know, belief that. This has to go through. The Tory party has also repeatedly said they'd prefer negotiations with the EU. I think a Tory candidate could say, well, Mm. we've always said all along that we were happy to negotiate with the EU as a a preference. You know, there is that that, uh, exit door to the protocol legislation the whole time. But I don't think it's going to be at the forefront of the leadership campaign. I don't think it's going to be mentioned much at all. And it's not Mm. going to be a priority for the leadership. Uh, Just by the way, Suella Braverman, who is the outgoing Attorney General, who herself has announced her intention to um, run for the leadership of the Conservative party has also this morning just in the last couple of minutes announced that it would be her intention uh, to withdraw the UK from the European Convention of Human Rights which would also in some people's eyes Shona Murray is, or Shona Sheena Cal, excuse me is already rolling her eyes because of course that's uh, supposed to be an underpinning of the Good Friday Agreement the idea that you have the European Convention and can refer to the European Court of Human Rights Yeah like we we were talking about Boris as if maybe this doesn't really impact us that much and it's you know it's been kind of entertainment uh, watching for the last week but actually what happens next in that Conservative government um, impacts so much obviously uh, the protocol and Northern Ireland relations but British-Irish relations probably have never been worse Um, when you have Mion Martin who is usually so I suppose thought thought through so stoic um, in giving any response um, when people resign or leave Mm. uh, things internationally was quite firm in indicating during the week uh, you know that maybe this is a a change there'll be a change The statement basically just said good riddance to dead rubbish basically It it did in as close to that that you can dip diplomatically yeah. say so, oh this offers an opportunity that is what to reset relations basically being like right this guy was an obstacle and thank god he's gone and and yet we and you know we there's so much riding on this um and um not just you know talking about the you know um the framework of of human rights across europe i mean the rea- when we're talking about uh, our energy security um in this morning at the front of i think this morning's business post talking about you know gas networks looking at you know what what will happen this winter if we're asked uh, to ration um our energy mm. so much of what we 
do in Ireland is dependent on that relationship with the UK. And at the minute, it is really not yeah. in a good place. Uh, which is why, by the way, we would uh, choose it to start uh, today's programme with because people will go, you know, why aren't you talking about the Irish government being in a minority? And of course, that's significant too and we will get to that. But an Irish government being in a minority doesn't necessarily mean a change of leadership or a change of policy is imminent. All it does is change the arithmetic of the doll. But the British stuff is, is far more germane and is going to take impact far more quickly. Uh, we're going to take a break. Lots more in the papers today with Gráinne and Sheena when we're back after this. I did mention that people will wonder why we weren't talking about Irish politics first and because of how, how cerebral or how hypothetical uh, the change in government arithmetic this week might be. Um, but Sheena, there is still uh, a, a decent amount uh, written in the papers, not only about um, the government losing its majority, about the loss of Joe McHugh, but about the um, the DPP's decision not to prosecute Leo Varadkar. And of course, that meeting of Fianna Fáil backbenchers, which seems to have exercised quite a lot of people this week. The 1926 committee, they're calling it I now. Don't do that. <laughs> Um, I know yeah you're, you're, you're dead the, right the, the year of Fianna Fáil's foundation it is okay. indeed um, so yeah no Elaine Byrne has a piece in the Business Post kind of just saying look at, uh, obviously this is interesting we need to talk about it it is a minority situation after McHugh voted against the government on the MICA on the MICA redress scheme uh, however probably not something that anyone's majorly panicked about um, so let's you know I suppose it's a separate discussion perhaps to the Fianna Fáil leadership and um, the you know the what appears to be a kind of growing unification between uh, some of the Fianna Fáil backbench um, uh, led I'm sure by uh, you know uh, Barry Cowan etc uh, but yeah we're looking at a situation where you know it's that minor- minority government in effect means that there's a bit of a weak link in the armour and um you know, normally where a government would be feeling very comfortable about votes passing that they're putting through the, the doll, it's less so the case at the minute. Is, is it as weak though as the headline might let on? Because no, like John no. McHugh is still going to vote in favour of yeah. the government. There's there's the, the two Greens, Nasa Harrigan and Patrick Costello will they're vote They're coming in back in them. November and, anyway. And there'll, there'll be two or three other independents who will always yeah. vote in favour of them. So like, it, they're not really in any danger. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, 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 it's certainly... And obviously, a point in time where Mary Lou and Sinn Fein are going to take are going to make hay while the sun is apparently about to shine in 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 Ireland. But if you've got the likes of Grealish and Galway West and um, Michael Lowry and Tip, who are absolutely steadfast in voting with the government, uh, mm. among a number number of other uh, independent TDs. Now we did hear, obviously, across radio coverage this morning that you know Michal Martin was making kind of anxious phone calls with his independents to kind of yeah. make sure that 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 support is shored up. But I'm, you know, I think. We when you look at McHugh, uh, obviously strategic for him, it was in, I think was it last May when he said, look, I'm not going to be running, uh, not for Fine Gael, I'm not going to be running That's in the next election yeah. at all. So he's, you know, he's going to be bowled. I mean, he's thinking, I'm going back to Donegal, uh, to my family. I need to absolutely support the, the local constituency. And, you know, if you look at it, really he's paving the way for uh, for for a fairly successful candidate behind him in Fine Gael there because he's able to say well look at uh, you know McConnell who's also in Donegal didn't mm. stand up free mm. on the Magre- uh, the redress scheme uh, I suppose in, mm. in his perspective uh, so yeah it's interesting yeah. but I don't think I think Elaine Byrne says government has 79 votes out of 159 so it's you know I think we're not uh, you know they're not actually in danger but it's still uh, it's something to write on about. I think yeah. it's going to be interesting as a tester of how you know you mentioned two or three independents and we obviously have three um, um, TDs who've uh, no, signed up whip. to the programme yeah. for government, mm. put it that way, who will probably vote with government. But I think it'll be a good tester ahead of the budget vote mm. about yeah. how strong the government support is because the, the government has said over and over again, we're not going to do something now, we're going to do it in, if, as part of the budget package or around that time when we know more. And I think there's going to be a lot of pressure on introducing the right measures for the right people at, you know, mm. in yeah. September because of that. They're putting a lot of pressure on themselves. So I think 
Sinn Féin motion is kind of shaking the government and see what falls out of it. Mm. Um, and it, but for as a journalist, I suppose it would be interesting to see wh- how big a challenge they're yeah. facing in September. Because uh, if memory strikes or serves me correctly, I, I, although Michael Lowry and um, Noel Grealish pretty much always vote in favour of the government anyway, there have been times in recent weeks where they have gone against, I think, the, the Sinn Féin vote on whether there should be an emergency budget. I think that in that case, it was literally government versus everyone else. They didn't have okay. any independent backers outside them at all. So maybe that's an illustrative of maybe why the, the government is calling around independence this weekend, trying to get them nailed yeah, down. Yeah, and when, when Sinn Féin put down that motion on the National Maternity Hospital calling for it to be built on publicly owned land, mm. uh, that's what Nessa Horrigan and Patrick Costello lost the whip on. And nobody was really expecting that to happen, you know. So um, they do... They do result in surprise results mm. every now and yeah. again um, and I suppose but then the flip side of that is 12 independents supported Simon Coveney when Sinn Féin put a motion of no confidence down on him And, and you are looking at this happening pre-budget like my sense of it as well is that you know um, Micheál Martin in those calls will probably be talking about some local infrastructure projects in some of those independent constituencies uh, you know when they haven't maybe decided everything for the budget that stuff might be on the table more so now in the conversation so the, the people of Tipperary and Galway West will might be suddenly be really great stuff. Well to be fair and I, and I don't mean to present this as clientelism but I think it's in the Sunday Independent today mm. that Cahill Berry the uh, the independent uh, TD and the former um, army doctor um, says that he will vote in favour of the government's confidence motion as long as the government this week signs off on its plan to expand uh, defence spending to bring it up to 1.5 billion a euro a year to bring the defence forces up to scratch and as long as he gets a commitment to cabinet this week that that's going to happen that his vote is there which, mm. which seems on the face of it people might argue that you're not being very independent if you just get what you want but that's kind of part of the clientelism that you expect when you're elected independent. Mm. Exactly, yeah. A I mean, very that, difficult way to run the country. You yeah. know, when you're not part of a party, you have to graft a bit harder mm. and you have to make those big calls and maybe, I mean, even if it doesn't happen, it puts that on the agenda and his constituency that he's working for issues that... Yeah. Oh, we're going to see more and more it. of this. If we're angling towards an election earlier or later, um, you're going to have more and more backbench TDs from all of the government parties as well uh, as anyone else kind of really angling towards their local constituencies again and saying, you know, really trying to make those local arguments because for, for the government parties, their biggest, uh, you know, fear, of course, is obviously Sinn Féin and anything that they can be talking about locally is going I, to be on the agenda. I thought it was interesting. There's a piece, um, Leo Varad, I don't have it open in front of me, very disorganised sorry but Leo Varadkar has a piece in the Sunday Business Post or the Business Post today um, and he talks about publishing a white paper later this year that talks about how they're going to use energy and how the workforce will be um, kind of revitalised and I think that is kind of setting out a new vision for the government halfway through the term before he becomes Taoiseach mm. again um, I accidentally called him uh, Thanish at that time instead of Taoiseach which is quite refreshing <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, It's but, only uh, taken us what? Yeah. <laughs> How long? <laughs> but um, I think that's that's what the government needs to do now it kind of does need a bit of a refresh halfway through and I think new ideas as well and that white paper that I read that as um putting new a new vision and new ideas and new policies in front of people and this is what we're going to do next in the next couple of yeah. months. Uh, somebody says on Twitter, I wonder about the timing of the Sinn Féin no confidence motion. It doesn't seem to be any particular crisis that might peel away a few flaky TDs. So it seems more like a publicity exercise than anything substantive. He says uh, about 25 minutes before I have Mary Lou McDonald in studio, which might sort of vindicate his point. He says, wouldn't it be better timed in the winter? I suppose the argument to that, Gina, is that there's basically going to be a de facto motion of confidence in December when the mm. Dáil has to vote on reinstalling Leo Varadkar anyway. So you might as well 
nearly take a free hit now because there's going to be another one in five months anyway. Oh, Sinn Féin are going to take any opportunity uh, to kind of to put forward motions like this of no confidence in the government or, or Micheál Martin etc. Like absolutely. I'm not surprised. The timing isn't for Mary Lou. Now I'm sure we'll hear more about that at 12. I don't think it's actually about a sense that we're now going to be pulling forward uh, an actual election. But I think it's about a week out from the summer holidays uh, causing as much damage uh, but also getting Sinn Féin as much coverage as possible um, around the uh, workings and operation of this government and at sh- and as, as as you said shaking up as much of the tree as po- the government tree as possible and seeing what apples and in what condition they fall. Uh, I think as well it'll be in, like if you think about holding say that vote on the budget in September during the cost of living crisis mm. it's much more symbolic and much more uh, feverish than mm. holding it now because the government has lost the whip well, from it, but if, if you basically have like you already said those budget votes in late September early October then you have de facto I mean that that is basically a confidence vote because if the yeah. government can't pass a budget then that's collapsing gover- anyway governments have collapsed before on budget votes very mm. famously as we know so it, it's not that it, like it, it's impossible that yeah. it would happen uh, Rob has been in touch by the way to query something that, that Sheena said that I didn't challenge her on at the time British Irish relations have never been worse Really? Never? How can you let a com- <laughs> comment like that stand without challenge? <laughs> to be fair, I mean, I, the only reason I didn't challenge you on it is because I am nearly sort of fed up to my back teeth challenging Micheál Martin and Leo Varadkar on it because I had Micheál Martin on this programme about a month ago and said, but you know, there was occupation and famine and, and literal armed conflict and rebellion and stuff and you're saying that now was the worst? Recent years, uh, well, I should that have was, said. That was yes, what he absolutely. said unstated. You're that all there right, was a Rob, you're all right. He said since the, Good Friday, the signing yeah. of the Good Friday Agreement, which okay. I think is fair. Which, which is uh, possibly uh, more straightforward. Uh, we have lots more to get through about the cost of living, housing, and uh, everything else in today's papers. I'm going to take a break and we're going to be back with more from Groin and Sheena in just a moment. Groin and the A of the Press Association and Sheena Cahill, Communications Manager with Goshka Ward, um, still with me in studio. Um, a reasonable amount written, as there always is, Groin, about the cost of living and particularly that, that front page piece in the, in the Sunday Times about shoppers paying more um, in Ireland or in the UK paying more in Ireland for Irish goods that are produced here than they would paying abroad we were only just saying during the ad break that like our, our favourite economic indicator would be the price of a Guinness in Dublin versus the price of a pint of Guinness yeah. anywhere else and how it can be somehow economical to have it cheaper in the place that's yeah, not made it, in every if you go abroad to you know Spain or France a, a glass of wine will be three or four euro because it is made probably in that region whereas here we can literally smell the Guinness being made yeah. <laughs> down there. Yeah, it's it's yeah, so that's, that's not a joke for non-Dubliners we could literally walk out of this, this building at any time and smell the brewery yeah. from a few hundred yards away. It's kind of hoppy smell yeah, around it the city. It smells like Weetabix in it the city. It does. And, and yet we're paying almost six euro for a pint. So Almost six euro. Six twenty in a I couple mean, of places last night. It just, it, it, it that I was obviously just sense. doing for, you know, yes, research. Yes, for research. research. You definitely weren't, weren't drinking before you came into <laughs> the radio. Cost of living research, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, you know, I was reading, a co- there's a good few articles in the past couple of weeks about why Ireland is so expensive. Most of them are kind of very, um, say the same thing that, you know, we're a small island on the edge of Europe that um, we have high prices because, uh, you know, services, we have to import them and, and that kind of thing. And then, you know, in terms of housing, the mortgage lending rules are quite restrictive. So we're paying higher interest rates mm. and all of that kind of thing. Businesses have to pay more rent for their premises. Insurance yeah, costs are often higher here. High so they have the higher overheads, just exactly. everything about just it. Just li- yeah. little things that kind of all build up. But one piece, ha- it was in the Irish Times and I can't remember the author's name, but basically it it pointed out that it is also a cultural phenomenon with, with Ireland. So when we face higher prices, there is a some there might be a, a le- there's a suggestion that there is a level of distrust among consumers for goods that are too cheap, particularly food goods, that they won't buy 
Do you think there was something, food, there's something basically. wrong with them? Then? Exactly. Okay. And then the other thing is that, that there there's a reluctance to complain too much about things that are too expensive um, as, a, as a kind of collective. So you might hear it on in, in small pockets, but not on a collective. Yeah. This was kind of the suggestion made. And when you look at the that headline, shoppers pay up to 70% more than UK for Irish goods. You do wonder why that is happening. You know, why why we are paying more yeah. for goods that are made here for in Ireland than than abroad. Yeah, because there's, there's one thing for like, you know, alcohol is, is taxed differently mm. in every jurisdiction. Now in Ireland, we have uh, minimum unit pricing for stuff that's bought um, outside of a licensed premises. And so like it, it obviously it's going to push things up a little bit. But like I was a little bit confused, now, I must say, by the likes of Sudocrine. And people who listen to this station will hear ads for Guaranteed Irish and how Sudocrine is, uh, you know, an Irish manufactured product. It's made in Baldoyle. It costs eleven seventy nine in Tesco um, in Ireland, uh, which is seventy two percent more than the price in Tesco in Britain, which is five pounds eighty, mm-hmm. and it costs eleven nineteen Super Value, which is more than twice the price at Sainsbury's in Britain, where you can buy it for five pounds. Um, like I, I can't fathom how the overheads would be such that it, it needs to cost nearly twelve euro in cost Ireland, but you can buy it for five. That's what it is. Well, like, is, it, say, is it a subsidised ferry? I, I will say one thing, which is that the use of pseudocreme oil, 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 based on your your opening was that it was just for nappy rash, uh, Gavin. But uh, that I was think, based on the Sunday I Times. Think, I think uh, Irish mammies around the country would say that it's for almost every ailment. You could pull out the pseudocreme and the flats mm. have up. Um, but yeah, so wait, that, that's why it's dearer in Ireland. Uh, yeah, because it's, it's, it's because a multi-purpose multi- medicine multiple in Ireland. Multiple uses yeah, here, versus in Britain, it's only that's for nappies. It. Yeah. <laughs> Single use. <laughs> Single use pseudocreme. Um, it's it would sicken you though, right? Like listen to listening to that this morning and hearing about um stuff that's produced here being so much more expensive here than it is abroad. I mean, that pack, does not make sense. A four pack of diet fat free Irish yogurts made in Clonakilty is on special offer in Sainsbury's, but usually retails at one pound fifty, which is one euro seventy seven. A six pack of the same yogurt retails for three euro ninety nine in Super Value, which works out at around sixty six percent per pot compared with forty four cent per pot in the UK. Literally. 50% of the difference. Yeah, and this is just a small group of items that the Sunday Times mm. has looked, well, like, you know, that they are mentioning and you'd wonder when you lengthen it or widen it out to other uh, products and other goods and um, services. Yeah. Exactly. How how it kind of all does add up. Um, you know, things that are made down the road, it, it just does make more sense that it would and I think it was something that we really learned from Brexit as well when we were looking at supply chains and how much we are interdependent on, um, you know, European markets for for various goods. We do need kind of to import things like vegetables and fruit from hotter countries because we can't grow those things year round here in Ireland. But there is like an argument for making more sense of Mm. supply chains to boost up kind of, you know, not to go to De Valera's Ireland on it, but, you know, (laughs) boost self I I was in Tesco this week and it was the first time where um, I witnessed a number of families or couples um, really, um, one one couple actually had an argument over the cost of something because it wa- that specific item wasn't on their list. Um, but the overall atmosphere for the for like genuinely for the first time, which I felt it like around me, was people really struggling with. Um, you know, they were they were really comparing the club card p- prices, mm. what exactly they had gone, like what they had budgeted for. They were coming in with their, you know, 30 euro or whatever it was. And we can't go over that. And you could I could hear those conversations happening. And those hadn't been happening for quite some time. Um, and, you know, that's so that that real world implication mm. of, um, you know, people and families struggling with that cost um, and even just getting around the place, obviously, via car. 
um, is astronomical at the minute and uh, you can really feel it. And so the fact that obviously we're having this conversation about, uh, you know, government turmoil and questions around leadership and all of that, there is a reality to the cost of living crisis uh, that is hitting every single house in the country mm. and people are really, really mm. angry and finding it really difficult. Yeah, which actually just only now that you say being in Tesco, as it happens, I was in Tesco yesterday as well and noticed that the usual bit, the reduced to clear section where stuff would have the yellow sticker on it because it was close to, to reaching its date uh, was a little bit more sparse than it mm. usually would be mm. and noticed that there was actually quite a few people in that aisle more than there usually would have been or, or would have been um, in previous weeks. Um, by the way, I should say that the Sunday Times did approach um, several of the retailers, Tesco, Lidl, Aldi, Boots, um, about why they would cost more to buy an Irish product in Ireland than it would to buy an Irish product in Britain. They said that the price differences, including transport, exchange rates, excise and VAT, uh, would all have parts to play. Uh, but it does point out that aside from transport, obviously being a naturally cheaper thing on the island than, than bringing it overseas, that VAT on food and period products in Ireland is typically at zero or a reduced rate, uh, although shampoo is at a standard rate. Uh, Britain charges 5% VAT on food. So the likes of Clonakilty sausages or black pudding or something should, should in so theory... So what are they sending the, the Clonakilty sausages over and back again just for a trip? <laughs> It's the only ones getting any, like, anywhere are, are through Dublin Airport. They're the only ones getting to leave. Is it the transport costs within Ireland is actually more expensive than to send them abroad overseas? But surely, if they're, I mean, okay, not Clonakilty is close to an airport and a port in, in Cork, but that yeah. generally speaking, these things tend to come to Dublin and then go over on a boat. And are we genuinely mm. suggesting that that that's, it's cheaper to take a boat than to be driven from Dublin to some other depot? somewhere else in Ireland for uh, it to be passed onwards. Some flights are cheaper than getting the train in Ireland. I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll, that's all I'll say. Uh, speaking of things that are unreasonably expensive and keep escalating in price without any clear cogent explanation, um, there's a lot written about the 10 billion euro Metrolink uh, in today's uh, weekend papers. Uh, 10 billion euro being somewhere between the government's estimated prices of 7 and a quarter and 13 and a quarter billion euro. Uh, only last year we were talking about how it could be delivered shortly enough but that it might only be 3 billion euro. And then we what had a Leo- wild ride. <laughs> well, <laughs> there we go. That's the tagline Le- for the metro. Yeah. <laughs> Leo Varadkar saying on this station earlier in the week that it could potentially reach an extreme price of twenty-three billion euro. Did Eamon he say Ryan. the word extreme? Because that's even that's scary in, it, in an extreme yeah, situation. Yeah. Um, Eamon Ryan asked about that that morning at the press conference and said, "No, no, no. I think it's going to be closer to seven billion euro." And we learn in the following days from the Irish Independent that actually Michael McGrath, the public expenditure minister, who was seated beside Eamon Ryan at that moment had warned the cabinet not to lowball the figure and said we have to be realistic it could be as high as 23. We're not good at pu- pu- massive public no. uh, development pro- Not to mention the children's project. hospital but the children's hospital but like you know, really how are we because, doing this? It's because of that and even the national broadband plan that you have to be a bit suspicious about those figures yeah. because you know I, I do understand the government puts out a tender costs can go up um, you know Inflation happens kind of naturally without outside the the inflation shock we're currently in, but it there has to be some sort of limit when when it comes to figures to protect the taxpayer and the state because we're all we already have a high amount of individual debt per citizen. Um, I know pa- Prudent Pascal is our Minister for Finance's mm. nickname, and you know he has kind of. Um, published and uh, pursued these big kind of policy measures to try and combat the cost of living and and the rest of it, which is necessary. But that high amount of public debt per individual citizen is kind of um, constraining in terms of big infrastructure projects. Just sort of then beg the question that if they are expecting it to be at the higher end of like 23 billion euro, given that that's not money that we've got sitting around in in the nation's back pocket down the back of the department sofa, that that's all going to have to be borrowed. And you could then 
you can say, well, of course, yeah, the airport should have a rail link to the city centre and everything else, or a city like Dublin should have a metro. But you, you could genuinely debate whether it's worth increasing a national debt, which is already about 250 billion by 10 percent, just to build a train line. Yeah. yeah. And I, our reliance on, you know, um, from the public purse perspective on money that's coming in through the tech companies um, is just concerning to everybody, including the central bank, around how many, how much of the budget decisions could be based on something that might not be there in five yeah. or ten years' time. Well, which is why then in the summer economic statement, which was published, God, an old epic six days ago. That's a, that's a long <laughs> a week in politics where it was published on Monday and doesn't doesn't feature anywhere in the papers at all. No. But just on that note, um, mm. Grani, the, again, the idea was revived of having the rainy day fund because if you can't depend on corporate tax, then you shouldn't guarantee or you shouldn't presume that it's there to spend and we should put away the surplus while it's there. You'd have a lot of people, including, I'm sure, Mary Lou McDonald with us in about 10 minutes or so, who will say now is the rainy day. Yeah. You can't be putting it aside for some other crisis when people are struggling to get by now. When we have such a crisis with our hospital, well, our healthcare sector, and we're in a housing emergency still that isn't really getting any better, I don't know if, as you say, spending billion, upwards of seven billion on a train line between Dublin City, basically, mm. And the airport is a good idea, particularly because there's other parts, you know, there's no train line to Donegal, for example. And we mentioned the Mika uh, housing scandal and how neglected that county is in general yeah. by central mm-hmm. government. Yeah. I'm not sure it is the best use of money by the government, even though, even you know, though there's the climate aspect of making it so much easier to get to the city centre. There's plenty of people from the south side of the city, even areas like I'm from just south of the M50, who would always want to drive to the airport. But if there was a high frequency train nearby yeah, you do like, that. Yeah, I mean, I I still don't think, like, the climate, I'm not sure the climate argument for building the Metrolink is the full thrust of why they're doing it, to be honest with you. And I, I take the point that there's going to have to be a lot of climate change changes made if they can justify spending, say, 15 billion, you know, mm. 15, 20 billion on a train to offset climate targets, then then yeah. maybe, but I haven't heard that art that that being the thrust of the argument, really, it's kind of a, it's 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 a a great gesture for the city, and they keep wanting to expand it into this kind of better resourced city. Mm. Um, but I mean, getting a plane isn't particularly climate friendly. No, either. no, yeah. it's true. Um, Sheena, last word to you on that. I re- I still really want one, and that's terrible. But I totally take the position that if there is no um, railway going to Donegal then why are we building one to the airport? Um, yeah, very fair argument. Uh, also not nearly enough attention paid this week to the fact that a lot of the proposed stations involve flattening large buildings that are already there. If you look at the artist's impression that's not going to be an easy thing to get planning for. Uh, completely out of time. Grown in the A uh, of the Press Association and Sheena Cahill of Goshka. Thank you both very much for joining us. On the Record with Gavin Riley. Brought to you by PwC. Sunday morning at 11. On News Talk.